Good afternoon. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Happy Wednesday. Uh, just an update here uh, for Opawa, Canterbury, due to a burst water main access to State Highway 74A from State Highway 76 remains closed to northbound right-turning traffic. Southbound access remains open to left-turning traffic via the slip rain. So burst water main there, Opawa, Canterbury will keep you up to date. Uh, and can I just say, very big response regarding uh, Raj's I've been thinking on dogs around the world. You can take them everywhere. Here, we're anti-dog. Uh, 2101, we'll come to that uh, later. And just a word on this, a coalition deal is imminent. Uh, RNZ will have the full coverage when it does happen. Uh, but however, this afternoon, National Deputy Nicola Willis has told uh, media, including RNZ, she's not in the running for the Deputy Prime Ministership, quoting, it's for the Prime Minister to decide. And I've made it clear to him I don't have any expectation whatsoever of getting it. Uh, she said she was happy to just get on to form a government and do her job as finance minister. And Nationals Chris Luxon said this afternoon it was fair to say uh, Deputy Prime Minister is one of the sticking points. Nine past four. Well, Pitoni, Pitoni, it's an historic area, isn't it? The settlement uh, lay close to the pa of Tipuri, the paramount uh, Te Atiawa chief. There was... Uh, there was uh, Pia Onipa, said to be the largest in the Wellington area. Samuel Parnell, often cited with the start of the eight-hour workday in New Zealand. He landed in Batoni with his wife in 1840. And now Hud City Council has backed a move to officially change the name of Pitoni to Pitoni. The document said it represent, represented a misspelling of the area's traditional Name with us is Mike Fisher, the chairperson of the Petoni Community Board. Mike, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Good to talk to you. Nice to have you here, Mike. Is this a significant moment for the good folk of Petoni? Well, it is. It is, and um, uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, going to attract a lot of comment, and we look forward to to hearing, you know, the the views of people when the Geographic Board does um, put it out for consultation in the new year. Can you tell us a little bit more? Can you tell our listeners who aren't in the area or from the region a little bit more about what is behind what was behind this move? Well, you alluded to it um, earlier and in your introduction. Um, the the name uh, Pita Oni um, has was originally you know named after the uh, the, the, the Par area and and uh, was the original name of the area. And following settlement. Um, and, and uh, development, uh, it has become anglicised uh, and the spelling to Petoni with the, the E and the general pronunciation that way uh, and grown over the years. And so it's really seeking to um, uh, to, to correct that and, and, and um, in line with council naming policy to, um, uh, to, to bring it back to its original um, uh, name. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, you know, um, the councils around uh, the country have been uh, grappling with various issues, uh, you, you know, this year, haven't they? Including uh, this one of either misspellings or changing names. Interesting here that um, the Hutt Council was really fully on board with this, well, almost anyway. Well, I guess the point to remember is um, that it is the uh, uh, the Wellington Tents Trust and the uh, Palmerston North Maori Reserve 
trust uh, as mana whenua, um, uh, raising this question with the, the uh, uh, geographic board. Uh, and what council has done and what the, the Petone Community Board has done is just in, in, endorse uh, uh, yep. their application. Um, and that's all it is at this stage. And, of course, as I say, it's up to the uh, geographic board exactly what what recommendation they, they put out for consultation. Let's uh, get our panel to jump on this. And Raj, you're not necessarily from Petone, are you? But you, you do live in the Wellington area. What's your take? Um I totally support it. And um, and what I love watching is actually history in motion in front of my eyes on an issue such as this. And um, I moved here in 2010. And just to give one example, I remember Parapara Umu near Wellington routinely being shortened, not just to Paraparam, but even Pram. And I what? would... And I would never draw any further inference about people who use that name. But I do think that over time, using the full name does change us. And it makes the full history of this Fenua more visible. And it influences our attitudes on other matters. Mike? Yeah, I, I agree. That that was very well put. And, and another good example, um, um, which I've been using when I've been asked, is uh, Rimu Tucker. Uh, and the correction of the um, spelling of it with the, the letter I and to an E and a, and a Macron. And um, and slowly it becomes more accepted. You know, there will always be some people who who just choose out of habit or, or um, you know, because they've always called it that way to, to refer to it in the original name. And, and no doubt that will continue. But I think it is a good move to, to, um, to restore the correct name and 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 like uh, Raj said, uh, you know, people will will slowly change, and um, and it will become generally accepted. Nalini, what about oh, you? Yeah, no, hi, hi, Mike. Um, I, I'm totally in agreement as well, but I do I do have some questions, and they're around things like, um, I mean, Rumataka is a very good example, and so is Wanganui, uh, Whanganui. Um But I'm more in favour of bilingual names purely because there's history there for both. And my concern is that we have literature from the past that would refer to the word pitoni. Um, we can't go back and correct those, can we? So in the interest of preserving our past history as well, as well as fostering the future, I think we should probably think about bilingual names. And Mike, I wonder what your thoughts are on those. Uh, well, personally, I'd be, you know, uh, quite open to that, and I think um, uh, even if the if the Pitaoni name was selected on its own, um, you know, there, there is just going to naturally be people who will always refer to it the way that they've grown up or um, got used to saying it. Um, but I, I, you know, I could be quite happy with um, the, the dual name. Uh, in the same way that we've got Aorangi uh, Mount Cook, Aorangi mm. Mount Cook. Oh, yes. So what happens now? What's the next step, Mike? Um, so the um, the Tense Trust's application will go through to the New Zealand Geographic Board uh, and then they would consider that and put it out for consultation, which would be in the new year. Uh, and obviously, you know, um, residents then and, and anyone, of course, around the country would be able to make a comment on it. Um, and they would consider that, and then the final decision would be a recommendation to the um, Minister of Land Information when <laughs> when we've got one, and uh, and they would make the final final decision.
I mean, is is pizza only used much now? Um, I'm just thinking, would it be better for the transition to occur naturally, you know, simply by people using it as opposed to going through this process? You know, for example, some people might call um, Tamaki Makoto Auckland. I mean, it's not a, it's not the same thing. It's not a misspelling. It's a, just a different aspect, but it's, 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 it's an issue involved in it. Or, for example, Whakatū Nelson. Is it better for a transition to occur naturally? Some people might call it uh, pitoni. Some might call it pitoni. Well, that again is another a good point. Um, it, it, I guess, in a way, it um, it just brings it to the fore straight away. In, in that, I know um, you know there's lots of English place names around the country that have been misspelled. Um, perhaps like a Mackenzie with a an A C instead of a M little C, etc. And slowly these things are corrected. Um, uh, I think in this instance, you know, if we end up with a, a either a dual name or allowing it to happen by osmosis, it's a possibility. Um, but I think it, this is a more clear-cut example like uh, Lima Tucker, etc., oh. where it's not a complete change of name, as it were, um, uh, or, from a, or from a particular settler's name or something like that to the original Maori name. It's really just a simple correction, if you like. Interesting stuff. All right. Uh, well done, Mike. Uh, got on it. Mike Fisher there, chairperson of the Portoni uh, Community Board. Not uh, all uh, Raj uh, into it, though. Uh, gosh, so this, this current fashion uh, of um, uh, renaming or recorrecting has no popular mandate. It's used by the professional class for ideological woke reasons. Is that... Am I being invited to comment on yeah. that? <laughs> well, um... I mean, I come from a country where uh, in India we we have similar renamings, and of course, of course, there is um, there is ideology behind that. But um, you also have to remember that you know the the slapping on of names by the the in our case the arriving colonizer, and perhaps here as well, also has an enormous ideology behind it too. So so to restore the full history of this country. Uh, pre-European arrival is is to kind of make the the totality of that history visible. I mean, interestingly, I live in a suburb where perhaps one day a correction of a spelling might occur, where we we'll go from Karori to what probably was Kaharori. Um, oh, yes, so, yeah. so we might be on that list. Um, Interesting stuff, isn't it? All right, kia ora, uh, Raj Which and Nalini. Raj. Yeah, uh, no, yes. we're, we're moving on to this because our next guest is waiting, Nalini. I'll ask you later. Um, the levels of gambling in schools is concerning. So says the Problem Gambling Foundation. Online gambling has become popular with secondary students sitting at their desks. Just under half of youths aged 16 to 24 had gambled. That's according to a 2020 health uh, NZ Health and Lifestyle Survey. Our next guest says school-aged children are being normalised to gambling through video games and offshore gambling advertising. With us is Andre Frude from the Problem from the Problem Gambling Foundation. Kia ora, Andre. Kia ora, Wallace. I was quite I, I was quite surprised at the stats on this. Just even this, that that stat from three years ago that just under half of youths aged sixteen to twenty four had gambled. How so? Well, it's interesting. I think what we're seeing now is a lot of normalisation of gambling. We've got 
you know, games that include loot boxes, which are, which are essentially simulated gambling. And of course, you know, these young people, they live their lives online. They're being absolutely bombarded with ads for offshore online gambling. And I think, you know, this is what, this is sort of the outcome really, is that we're going to see more young people um, being uh, gambling online and being impacted and potentially being harmed. Can you describe these loot boxes? What, 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 what are they? They're part of many popular games, and essentially they're just like virtual containers, and you don't know what's inside them, and you often have to pay money to open them, and they can um, give the player, you know, it might be a new costume or it might be some in-game currency, but at the end of the day, you don't actually know what you're going to get. And, of course, worthless items are really common, and the more valuable items are rare, which, of course is pretty familiar with um, any type of gambling, really. So they're psychologically akin to gambling, but they're not actually, well, they don't fit into the definition of gambling because you can't cash out. I see. But a lot of, a lot of young people are spending money on these game, on these um, loot boxes. Well, uh, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and here we come to the issue of gambling that is online and the issue of phones with young people, this must be quite a concern for you. Look, it absolutely is, um, just because it's so accessible. And the other thing is, it's really easy to hide. So, you know, these young people can carry um, their phones around in their pockets. And we've anecdotally heard stories of um, students gambling, you know, at the back of the bus. And um, one student had lost over $200 gambling online. So um, just highly accessible and very easy to hide, which makes it really high risk. And, and you know, they are a high-risk group. Let's go around the panel on this one, Andre. Uh, Nalini, let's bring you in. Hi, Andre. Um, I suppose Hi. the concern also is that this leads to greater problems in the future. And, I mean, this is sort of a training ground, a breeding ground, isn't it, for com- compulsive gambling? And- um, Absolutely. Do we know how these kids are being able to fund these? I mean, do they have source of funding? Obviously, they have source of funding from the parents, or is you know where, where's the money coming from? That's a really good question, and uh, you know, I, I guess perhaps these these young people are getting pocket money or mm-hmm. um, having access in some way. To, to money to be able to gamble. Um, unfortunately, you know, they might have had a win um, and mm. then they just reinvest those winnings, which, of course, is one of the real risk factors with gambling, actually. Um, a lot of people who've experienced harm from gambling have told us that they have a win early on and that sort of led to a downward spiral as they sort of re-gamble or gamble the money that they've won. Um, and, and there's now a really solid body of evidence um, that there's an association between harmful gambling and loot box spending. So, you know, we're getting this grey area, this crossover between gaming and gambling. Uh, so, you know, that again can be very problematic for young people who, who game. And do we know what the parental awareness is of, hmm. of this issue? That's that's also a really good question. Um, we really want to raise awareness of this among parents because it's really difficult for them to to know, for example, a game that they might be buying, whether that has got loot boxes or other simulated gambling within it, um, and to be really um, aware of what their 
their children are actually playing online. And it's a really, um, you know, very difficult for parents. But yes, we really need to um, make them aware of some of the risks associated with these things. Yeah, interesting, uh, Raj. The interesting uh, uh, article here is by Bella Craig, actually, from it was in the Herald here. A former student cited a uh, Hawke's Bay secondary school student said that when sh- he was at school, he started betting money on overseas video game Counter-Strike Global Offensive skin gambling website, saying there's, there's all sorts of weapons you can get. You can get different skins so your guns in the game can have different patterns. Uh, and so this is the issue, uh, Raj, going you know from gaming to all of a sudden, as a very young person, real-life money. Absolutely, and I completely share uh, Nalini's concerns and have very similar questions. Like, as a parent, I was far less aware of this danger lurking in the online world than some of the other ones about which we are made much more aware, like cyberbullying and other dangers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this, and what came to me reading some of uh, Andre's thoughts is that this term gateway drug has been used in the past to create so much moral panic. But it does seem like online gaming and gambling might be one case where it does have some valid use. I mean, I found it very concerning to hear about the number of young people who get into serious levels of debt with their online gambling and then transition to different kinds of real-world gambling as well. So I'm all for learning about... um, This morning on... Sorry um, about that. Keep going, Raj. I'm, I'm all for learning about uh, what we need to be aware of as parents and, and how might there be more awareness and regulation. And on that, finally, Andre, uh, are we lacking uh, beh- in other, behind other countries regarding online gambling legislation? Absolutely. Um, our Gambling Act is 2003, and um, it really needs to be more fit for purpose it currently isn't I mean if you think back to 2003 I don't think the internet is even mentioned in the gambling act it's really important that we get some regulation around this and age restriction around some of these more harmful loot box games um, and warnings for parents of these games include uh, loot boxes or other simulated gambling um, and that's what's happening uh, around the world as a lot of jurisdictions are battling and uh, with this, the regulation of of online gambling and games with loot boxes. Very good, Andre. Kia ora. Thank you. That's Andre Frude there from the Problem Gambling Foundation. Interesting. Uh, I'd be interested to hear if, you've, if this has been uh, an issue in your family, suddenly realising that uh, uh, your secondary school... Uh, a son or daughter has had an issue with this, um, this these online gambling apps. Two one zero one twenty seven past four. The panel RNZ National are uh, loving your company this afternoon, and thank you so much for your wonderful wonderful responses regarding uh, a, a cover of a song which is better than the original. Big response here. Here's one for example. Johnny Cash's version of Hurt is so much better than the Nine Inch Nails original. It aces with emotion and regrets, says Graham, and that is so true. I almost cried when I heard uh, Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. It was just, oh, gosh, heartfelt. 
in a way that the Nine Inch Nails version wasn't. What's another example of that? Two, one, zero, one. I've got a fantastic example for you just after 4.30. But this has been a story uh, of one of the stories of the last couple of days. You might have heard this. A 77-year-old June Armstrong arrives at 4 a.m. at Christchurch Airport for an early morning flight to see family in Brisbane, goes to the airport, buys a muffin and a gluten-free chicken and lettuce sandwich, which was sealed. I sat down, ate some of my muffin, and I didn't feel like uh, the rest, so I threw the rest away, but I put the sandwich in my small backpack, uh, she tells the Herald. She forgets about it. Next thing, Border Patrol Australia finds the sandwich. The man says, 12 points, 3300 What does that mean, she says. Turns out it's a $3,300 fine. She paid the fine before the deadline, incurring a fee in total of 3700 she couldn't sleep. The whole saga, Nalini, has affected her life. And um, uh, as an update, one kindly anonymous donor um, gifted her the money to uh, cover it. And if you are that anonymous donor, text me, 2101. I'd love to hear from you. What's your take on this, uh, Nalini? Just an honest mistake or actually rules are rules? Well, it's called strict liability in law, which is you do the crime, you pay the fine. But, you know, the Australians are not going to let you on this one. I'll tell you that much. I've been through it. Um, in what way? In, in you know, I, I once had, well, I once had something in my backpack too, many, many, many years ago. Which was? Not very, just a little bar of chocolate. And what I hadn't done was actually put it on the form. And so I got sent to a special line where they didn't just stop at my backpack. They opened my entire suitcase to see if I had anything else that I should have declared and didn't declare and was trying to actually smuggle through by security. So I've been through it. But look, really sad situation. I feel very sorry for this lady. Um, And and I wondered whether a couple of things need to be done. One is the airlines allow you to bring food on the plane. It is the airline's responsibility to repeatedly remind you before you disembark, please get rid of anything you've brought onto the aircraft before you get to biosecurity because the fines are horrendously high. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think once you get to a few steps before biosecurity, and I think New Zealand does this very well, you have large bins which says, have you got something you shouldn't be bringing in? Here's your last chance. Good advice. Last chance. So, you know, we need reminders like that. Yeah, and reminders of the the last chance, Ben. Uh, Raj, your take. I mean, I was stunned by the story of the ripple effects (laughs) on her anxiety and on the rest of their spending. But, you know, recently... I was watching an episode of the show on border security in Australia. On great TV. show, great show, border yeah. security. Yep. And there was a foreign couple arrived at Sydney who had an enormous amount of food with them that they hadn't declared. And the husband did two things. First, he claimed that the wife had packed it all without his knowledge. And he kind of yelled at her. Right for the marriage. And also that he was the boss of a big company. And my reason for bringing it up is that I believe that on that program, their fine was somewhere in the region of $400. And so, again, the question of the discretion of the individual Mm. officer comes in and to what extent this woman was kind of bullied by one officer, uh, apparently enforcing the law. Like, um, 
So did the did the man talking about being a CEO make a difference or the presence of the TV cameras? Ah. Or was it just one slightly bullying uh, officer uh, without denying that the woman had made an error? Um, yeah, shocking example, isn't it? Three thousand seven hundred. A person who has thirty thirty thousand dollars in life savings on the pension, uh, mm. albeit mm. freehold, uh, but uh, almost thought of giving up their bowling subs, uh, two hundred dollars because they can't afford life. Next minute, uh, this. Uh, have you been stung, or have you got? Have you been pinged with anything going through customs? Let us know. Two one zero one.